mention this because as you study Luke 10, it's sort of become a little bit of labor of love the last couple of uh, really two months or so of just working through it. And you actually find a very consistent theme working through the whole thing. So obviously in the first part, we're going to look at this morning, the sending out of the 70. Uh, and then you have this transition of when they come back, Jesus has a message for them, which is a little bit what we're focusing on this morning. Uh, and then you see a prayer of Christ. Uh, kind of on the same thing, the Good Samaritan, and then sort of the familiar story at the end of Luke 10 about Mary and Martha, where Martha's, you know, real busy and Mary, and then there's sort of that interaction. But if you study the whole chapter, it actually builds on itself on the same theme, and it comes at it from different angles. Uh, and really, if you're, you, you could kind of summarize in a, in a couple different ways, but the theme of Luke chapter 10 is basically the absolute necessity of closeness and faithfulness to Christ. So whether it's in our commission as believers uh, or in our focus or our mentality and serving, maybe even just in our efforts in day-to-day life, everything about us as believers actually ties back to our redemption in Christ, what he has done for us. And this is sort of the highlight point, not what we do for him. This morning, we're really centering in on the idea that our salvation is the source of our joy and satisfaction, not just in life in general, but actually specifically in service to our King. And we do, and I think we all struggle with this to some extent, we tend to attribute far too much earthly value and the things that we do or the things that we accomplish. And and often what we do is we tie too much of our identity to the stuff that we do or the things that we feel like we accomplish. When in reality, as we're going to find this morning, our contentment, our satisfaction, or our joy kind of rejoicing, and even our identity should not rest in what we accomplish, but actually what God has eternally accomplished on our behalf on the cross and on um, through the resurrection. Uh, Matthew Henry is one of my favorite uh, just sort of guys to read. Um, he had this really good quote on this passage I thought was helpful. He said that the power to become a child of God is to be valued more than a power to work miracles. Those whose names are written in heaven shall never perish. They are Christ's sheep to whom he gives eternal life. Saving graces are more to be rejoiced in than even spiritual gifts. God's holy love for us is a more excellent identity than personal talents. This passage is a reminder of the danger in building a spiritual resume in our service to God and within his church. There is an undeniable foolishness and arrogance in seeking to prove ourselves worthy or to show off the skills, talents, or even experiences that God has graciously given or enabled in us. Our identity as believers has nothing to do with who we are or the gifts and ability we have, but has everything to do with Christ's redemptive work uh, uh, in our life. And a, a title, if you're a note taker, my title this morning is Rejoicing in Whose We Are. Uh, not in who we are, but rejoicing in whose we are. And this is sort of the key question. It's going to come up right now, obviously, because <laughs> I'm about to say it. Uh, but a little bit later and then towards the end, we're going to bring it back up. And this is sort of our key question. When everything else is stripped away, is your relationship with Christ enough to keep you rejoicing? Or do you always seem to need more? 
always seem to need another title, another role, another responsibility? Or are you content to just be close to Christ and to faithfully represent him where you are? I know that's a long question. So the simple key question, uh, the simple version is, when everything else is stripped away, is your relationship with Christ enough? So we are, in a sense, focusing on 17 through 20. um, But Obviously, it's important to keep statements within their biblical context, um, and especially like the overarching situation. And so really 1 through uh, 20 are, in a sense, one sort of simultaneous situation. Obviously, the conversation that happens when they come back is at least a few weeks later, but it is sort of connected, obviously, to the mission that he sends out them out on and the commission that he kind of gives uh, them Uh, before they go out, basically. Uh, So we get into this, but frankly, the context actually builds to the climax of what Jesus says in 18, 19, and 20. Um, So to kind of look at this, um, I'm going to reread verses 1 through 3, because it does actually summarize the sort of the sending out of the 70, but then he also basically just summarize the mission itself. So just look at chapter Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore, Jesus said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. So first, it's important to note uh, basically just where we are in the general timeline of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you want to tag a specific date on it, uh, some of it, I guess, depends on perspective, but we're basically um, going to say we're in late 30 AD, the year 30 AD, towards the end of that year, um, which actually, and this is sort of the critical note, this puts Jesus about five months away from the crucifixion and resurrection. So I think when you take sort of that historical context into your mind, when you look at the passage, you recognize that there's a level of urgency, at least obviously from his perspective and knowing, you know, four, five, six months from now, it's the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so I just add a note that the urgency of the harvest and of laborers being few, doesn't it take a different tone when you realize how close they are to the most important event in human history? It just changes this commission a little bit, but it's important to kind of recognize that. His fame and popularity is at its absolute peak right now, and he has amassed a significant following. Now, of course, we always think of the 12 disciples, which are, of course, involved in this, but his group, his following, the the people that considered him like his teacher or their, their rabbi was actually much larger. So yes, you have the 12 disciples. Um, There's also the gospel talks about this group of women that were a big part of that closer following as well. But what we find in this passage is there's also a group of at least 70 other men that follow Jesus as their teacher, as their rabbi. And Luke chapter 9, if you go back a chapter, Jesus sends out the 12. And if you study sort of the commission that he gives to the 12, it's almost identical to this commission that he gives to the 70. So he's sending out these 70 students on this mission for the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at the end of verse 1 of chapter 10, 
It tells us that he was doing this to prepare the way for his coming in specific towns, villages, and cities. So he's sending these guys out in pairs of two, and they're going to the cities that he is about to go to. But recognize, remember, this is most likely his last sort of like teaching, healing circuit before the, before the final Passover. So there is, again, just noting this urgency kind of in this mission and commission. So you have, again, about 70 guys in pairs of two which would give us between 30 and 40 specific places that were going to be visited kind of based on that number. So they were going to go to these towns and these villages. They were supposed to preach the kingdom of God, um, preach and teach. They were supposed to heal and do miracles, which was empowered by God himself, of course. And the ones that responded in faith were the towns and villages that God or that Jesus would end up going to. I mean, he was God, but like, you know what I'm talking about. Sorry, <laughs> But he's going to go. Those are the towns and the villages that he's going to. Uh, at following that. Uh, now, there is a significance in him sending them out in pairs of two. Uh, of course, one, you do have the benefits of company, friendship, encouragement, and support. Uh, and many commentators note this as a sort of an early symbol of the church, basically illustrating the necessity of faithful Christian community and fulfilling the Great Commission that's been given to us as well. Um, but actually, it's also important to note another really important reason was the law, specifically in Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19, and kind of in that area, actually required that two or three witnesses were, uh, were necessary to confirm the accuracy of an event or of, of something being told. Uh, so along with the miracles that they were doing as empowered by Christ, this was a means of confirming the truth of what they were teaching and preaching about Jesus. And again, remembering all of this is going on in the context of sort of this final opportunity for people to hear before the crucifixion and the resurrection. So there is a unique tone of urgency in Christ's commissioning of these men. Jesus, of course, isn't panicking. And I think sometimes people misinterpret it a little bit. Like, they're, you know, he's, he's not like panicking, like the, the harvest is here, the way we're going to do. You know, he's, he's not panicking like maybe we would. But recognize that the reality was for many individuals, this would be their last chance to come to Christ as his time on earth was coming to a close. So you have two, actually two basic illustrations that Jesus gives of this work, this mission that he called them to. In verse 2, he uses the illustration of a harvest. And then verse 3, he kind of describes his followers uh, with, you know, the lamb among wolves. So in verse 2, it basically is just emphasizing the work that is to be done, and it's, of course, illustrated as a harvest. Now, as you farm and you work, you basically are pre preparing whatever your product is to be ready in a certain window of time. So I, I know when I was just, you know, you sort of are reading and studying out, uh, my brain immediately went to the cornfields, like just outside of Culpeper. Um, our church typically uh, plays in like a local uh, softball league. And the softball field we play on, like our games are out in Stevensburg. So if you're coming from Culpeper, you kind of take this back road through some fields to get to the ball field. And it's just interesting, like as you go throughout the season, there's a section of it that's corn. And it like slowly gets taller and taller and taller. And then it's like the next week, it's just gone. Like, pff, like what happened? You know, aliens. <laughs> but it's like, it just, it's just gone all of a sudden. And it, it does have this idea when you're talking about a harvest um, they have to, when they hit this like harvest window, it has to get done rapidly in order for them basically to get the most out of that harvest. 
Now, there's a, there's a reality in this because sometimes I think maybe the illustration isn't used um, well because recognizing in God's harvest, the reality is that in his sovereignty, the work will be done. It's not a question of whether or not the harvest is going to get finished. The question is, are the laborers going to show up and be a part of it? And so this is where I get into this. We start sort of touching on this theme of how sometimes we, we get a little bit too cocky about what we do. And we use this illustration to kind of spurn ourselves on, I would say, in the wrong way. It's actually a reminder that there is a harvest. And in God's sovereignty, the harvest is going gonna, gonna to happen. The question actually is, are you going to be involved in it or not? So he uses that illustration to push them and saying, this window is coming, and are you going to be a part of it, or are you going to be lazy, make an excuse, and not be a part of it? So really fascinating there, which he actually uses as a springboard into another illustration of the work ahead. And I think if we're honest, this one's a little bit less enticing. We kind of want to skip over it. Um, But what does he say in verse 3? At the end of verse 3, go your ways, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Christ identifies his faithful followers as lambs. Now, obviously, uh, this isn't a scare tactic. I'm going to point that out. He's not trying to, like, freak them out. Like, (laughs) you're a lamb, the wolves are coming. So, you know, gird up your loins. You know, like, it's not a scare tactic to force them to work seriously. He's not manipulating them into a serious mindset. But recognize that this actually is a statement of reality, And one, in fact, that Jesus has consistently taught his followers. So, for instance, in John 15, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, And this is a theme that you pick up on as well in like the epistles of the New Testament uh, and actually some of what we looked at in adult Bible fellowships this morning, this persecution, this this hostility that comes and seeking to genuinely live a Christ-like life. The world's hostility towards true Christ followers is a reality, not a possibility. And I use this to kind of basically make this point. We should be skeptical of ministries, authors, influencers, and creators that relish in their secular associations. Seeking culture's approval or trying to be trendy actually requires you to abandon true biblical teaching and philosophy, which to be fair should be alarming. It shouldn't be a strategy. If you don't believe me, or, you know, I know sometimes people hear certain kinds of statements like, well, I don't, I don't really agree. I think it depends on the situation. Um, then actually, you just have to answer one question, and I'm going to steal it from his illustration. How long do you think that a sheep would last in a wolf pack? <laughs> Maybe to lunch, you know, <laughs> it's depending on how big breakfast was. That's that really... We get this idea that sometimes we have to change strategy. And the question coming from this illustration is, okay, fine. How long would a sheep last in a wolf pack? It wouldn't last very long. Now, we will spiritualize people trying to reach our culture by being relevant or trendy. But to get you to understand how ridiculous and, frankly, how useless that is, this wolf-sheep illustration is actually flawless, which uh, not that we should be surprised, okay? Um, But kind of painting it this way, a sheep 
Seeking the safety of a wolf's approval would be what? Fatal. <laughs> Catastrophic. Everyone's like, ah! <laughs> right? A sheep seeking the safety of a wolf's approval would be fatal. It would be catastrophic. And so too is a Christian's attempt to be approved by our society in order to trick people into seeing or hearing the gospel. The world is unaffected by a worldly, culturally relevant Christian or church. Don't be tricked into thinking that a sheep can befriend a wolf. Wolves are fierce, violent, bloodthirsty hounds that will tactically and mercilessly hunt down prey to satisfy their appetites. It's actually a really fascinating look if you sort of like study how wolves hunt. Uh, it's, it's like a little bit creepy. It's like I'm never going anywhere where wolves are or bears or I'm, I'm just not, I don't want to die that way. So, uh, but it is, it's, they're very tactful and, and merciless in the way that they hunt down prey. Now, you take that and you flip it, right? Because a sheep, on the other hand, Sheep are helpless, hopeless, defenseless animals that without a shepherd to protect, provide, or guide them, literally have zero hope of survival. Uh, I, it's interesting, sometimes you do, you're just doing research on like sheep facts just to kind of, you know, find a way to illustrate this. Um, I read, there's two things. One, I read this article that was, I was like, why are you trying to make sheep sound like they're so incredible? And it was talking about, you know, they have these rectangle, uh, like pupils or, uh, like corneas and they're rectangular, which means they have almost 360 degrees, which is a great thing to have as like a prey animal. And I was like, so they can see if a wolf is going to eat them from behind or from the side or from the front. Like, it's coming. What are you going to do? Run. And you can't run faster than a wolf. So I'm like, how does that help them? I feel like it's just they have a panic attack before they get eaten and they die. So it's less painful. I don't know if that's – I just I – I was like, this is the most ridiculous article about sheep I've ever read. Um, which it gets even better or maybe more pathetic. Uh, somehow I, I, you know, I ended up on this, like, farmer's bulletin page for whales, like in the United Kingdom. I, just follow me for a second. Uh, and I, I saw this like post. It was sort of like a, you know, like public announcement of, you know, this season. It was for these towns that were basically surrounded by these sheep farms. And it had like this picture of a sheep on its side. And um, I kind of wrote it out. It said, if you see a sheep in this position, they are not resting. They are dying. They are in critical danger, and you must act before they perish. And it was like this sheep, you know, just like, <laughs> and it, it, it was, I say pathetic. Um, it really was. And I just did a little bit of research on that. It was like, why, what in the world? But basically, once a sheep gets to a certain size, or if it's pregnant, um, or if like its wool gets even a little bit too big, if they fall on their side or back too far, they are incapable of getting back up. So you have these sheep that literally, if they like, whoops, oh, that, that's it. You know, you're, you're there and you're done. Um, but they literally starve to death. And, I, you know, you start getting like, this is hilarious. Oh, man, this is pathetic. And then you go back to Luke 10 and you're like, oh, <laughs> you're being sent out as sheep among wolves. And until you realize, basically, again, that Jesus calls those that are seeking to faithfully follow him sheep. Because in reality, and this actually connects to the Good Samaritan, if, if you were here for that last month. In reality, we are hopeless and helpless 
and defenseless apart from our good shepherd. And if we're honest, being a sheep kind of strikes our ego, doesn't it? Because like our culture has that, like even Christian culture is like, I'm not a sheep, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not, you know, I'm a, I don't know. We, we find any possible animal except for a sheep. But, but there's a humbling reality in saying, if you are going to humbly follow God, you must be his sheep. Not sheep to culture, right? We don't capitulate to culture, but sheep to recognize that we are hopeless, helpless, and defenseless without our shepherd. We are called God's sheep, and he is our shepherd. This term highlights actually two characteristics of a Christian's life, innocence and dependence. Now, innocence from the world and appearance, behavior, and association, you can actually study that in James 1. And then dependence, meaning that our success and survival is based on one fact, one, closeness to our shepherd. If you think that there's any room for worldliness or social trendiness in the life of a believer, you only have to answer one question. How long would a sheep last in a wolf pack? So to summarize, there are these two illustrations, right? And they paint a picture of the mission that we're called to. God's work is ready to be done. The harvest is great and it is ready, but will you be a faithful part of it? And then secondly, God's work requires and demands closeness to the shepherd. Worldly distractions on any level will be fatal in the life of God's children, of God's sheep. From here, uh, Jesus actually launches into the specific commission. So again, if you're a note taker, that was the mission, verses 1 through 3. And now the commission is verses 4 through 16. He launches into the commission of the mission uh, and, and how his followers, basically how we're supposed to serve in the harvest. And then secondly, what is our response to the wolves supposed to be? So he's basically building on the harvest and then how do we handle wolves? So two points, how are we to live and serve? And then second, how do we respond to wolves? Verses four through nine, just because of the chunk, we're not going to read it again, but obviously we read it for scripture reading. Uh, basically this idea that as you travel, don't take anything extra with you at all. And then kind of this idea of don't waste any time on useless formalities. It's kind of a funny statement. You read it where he's like, don't even, don't even greet people. But it was, uh, it was a form, he was referring to like this, excuse me, this formal greeting that would take not just hours, sometimes days, like you'd meet, go through this whole thing. He was like, don't waste time with these useless formalities. And remember the, the urgency, okay, not the panic, but the urgency. So he's saying you don't take anything extra and don't waste any time. Now, this is not, um, I say, prescriptive of the specific way that we're supposed to live, um, but it is very, and accurately, I should say, descriptive of the mentality and philosophy that we ought to have as we live our lives in dependence on our shepherd. This illustration carries actually all the way through verse 9, where he kind of basically has the idea like you're resting in God to provide what is needed, and you shouldn't always be looking for more comfortable accommodations or better provisions or just trying to find a house with a better cook, uh, which was normal. Like people would come and they'd be like, oh, that was all right, but this guy offered me a nicer house so and his beds look a little more comfy and his wife is a better cook. I, like it was just the idea of you're not always looking for something better, but when God provides it, trust that you're taken care of and stay faithful to the mission. 
Now, this is in a sense, and then also obviously tied in is don't bring all this extra stuff with you like God's going to take care of you. Um, this is, uh, you could call it like a trust exercise for his disciples. It was actually an opportunity for these men uh, to live out what Jesus had been teaching them since the Sermon on the Mount. So for instance, just to sort of like sandwich a chunk of Matthew 6, we're commanded to not be anxious about the things of this world. God intimately cares for you and he knows what you need. We are wasting time and energy stressing out about whether what God has provided or not provided is enough. Christ commands us to first seek his kingdom and his righteousness, which John MacArthur defines as our faithfulness to God takes priority over everything and anything in this world. Uh, And basically in this, we step closer to the shepherd of our souls, resting in his care, resting in his provision, and not resting in the false security of temporal or material things. So Christ's words in verses 4 through 9 basically remind us that our sole focus ought to be faithfulness to him in every area of life. So whether um, our jobs, our homes, uh, our families, maybe even our friendships, that God's kingdom, his glory, and his righteousness should mean more to us than any temporal or material things. Wanting the best for our families, for our kids, or even for our churches um, shouldn't be about temporary things or even experiences, but rather doing whatever it takes to save them from the wolves and to point them to God's kingdom and glory. Remember, the harvest that these followers were about to labor in was an exercise in loving and trusting God no matter what happened. Like whether, whether there was a, a lack of provision, whether people heard it or rejected it, it was, a, it was basically an exercise in what they had been learning from Jesus however long they'd been following him. And that's where we go back to this key question. If everything else gets stripped away, was God going to be enough for these men? If you strip everything else away and just have to trust God, is that enough? This reality is actually highlighted again when Jesus dives into how they were to handle the opposition and the rejection of wolves. And this is what you find in verses 10 through 16. Now, in verse 11, he uses this um, this illustration. He said, even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Uh, This was, um, let me make sure I get this. Uh, The wiping off of the dust was a cultural sign of condemnation and disgust. Now, it was typically used uh, a little bit arrogantly, but here it was essentially telling these towns that God's judgment was on them for rejecting truth. And so they didn't even want to carry the dirt of the town with them. So this is something that you see in the New Testament. Obviously, Jesus is telling his disciples to do it. He actually tells the 12 to do the same thing in their mission. Uh, And fascinating is you actually can study it also in Paul's ministry, specifically in Antioch, where uh, you have the situation unfolds and the people reject. And what is Paul and like Barnabas, they, they shake the dust off. And this was something that to us, maybe it seems like a little obscure, but like a Jew seeing a man walk out of their town and going, see this dust? I don't want nothing to do with it. Like they're just, a Jew seeing that knew instantly what was being communicated. It was a very clear act of condemnation on a people, on a group, or obviously in this case, a city. It was a clear way of communicating the severity 
and the weight of a decision that they had just made to reject the gospel. Um, And I kind of wrote this question, have you ever seen the weight of a decision physically burden or affect someone? Have you ever seen that? Like someone makes a decision and just physically you can like watch the weight of it like affect them. Uh, Now I'm trying to think of how to illustrate this and um, I'm going to give a warning to Bengals fans, okay? Uh, So if you're a football fan and you're Bengals, it's like a little like PTSD from last week. Um, So it's just that's my warning, okay? Um, But last week, if you're a football fan, uh, was the AFC Championship. Uh, It was a good game, back and forth, whatever. Uh, And it came basically down, there's like 10 seconds left, and this guy, uh, uh, Joseph Osai, is a, he's a defensive uh, lineman. He's a rookie, so this is his first year. And on the last play of the game for him, he actually shoved the quarterback after he'd stepped out of bounds, which was like a 15-yard penalty. Now, again, I say normally that would be an unfortunate penalty, but in the situation, it actually ended up being really serious. So again, this is the AFC Championship, so the winner goes to the Super Bowl. And on top of that, that penalty put the Chiefs in field goal range, which they went on to score. So the game was tied. There's less than 10 seconds left. He does this. They get in field goal range. They kick it. They lose the game. So it was, it was this really, you say, just catastrophic decision by this guy. Um, now, I say this because I'm like, you play a game for a living, and it resets next year, so you'll be fine. Um, however, that's the like uncompassionate part of me. This the compassionate part of me. Uh, so it's just switching the side of the brain, I guess. Um, and you, I do, you do actually feel for this guy because the cameras all, what do they do? They're like, oh, this guy that just ruined the game for his team, he's like ugly crying on the sideline. And what do they do? Let's like zoom in on his tears. Like, let's just, you know, like, can you give the guy just a little bit of privacy? Like he realizes, but I do actually even sitting there with, with Bethany as we were watching the game, you actually do start to feel almost this sense of empathy for him, which again, I'm like, you play a game, so... It'll, it's, you get another shot next year. It'll be fine. But you do feel this like national television, millions of people watching. And you, but you could, I mean, literally watch as he committed the foul and they called it from that point over like this two or three minute period where the field goal was scored and they lose. You could physically watch him like break down from like, oh, that was bad. Oh, this, oh. And then he's like ugly crying. And you're like, oh, this is okay. Could you like just commercial break, please? You know? But it, I mean, you could actually see the weight of what he had done physically affect him. Now, looking at this idea, and I'm, I'm, we're going to transition, obviously, to the eternal weight of the decision to reject God. Because messing up a football game is one thing. It's just a game. It's fine. Um, but now you put it back in the context of the weight of a decision to re- reject God is something that, and I'm going to say it this way, we'll work through it, that people need to, to feel, we need to feel, And so as we get into this, as Christians, we are doing no one any favors by not being clear about how serious the rejection of Christ really is. Now, you pull in Ephesians 4, right? Because we are demanded, commanded, that we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. That's important. But I also want you to recognize that within that, recognizing that biblical love actually motivates us to share truth clearly and without apology. So for example, if my love for my wife or for my children is vague and unclear, then you would have reason to question if I really loved and cared for them. But 
If it is love, if, if it is clear, if my love for my family, for my wife is clear, it's obvious, it's proclaimed and practiced, then no one doubts my heart for them. If our approach to sharing the gospel softens the rejection of Jesus Christ in an attempt to supposedly love someone, then recognize that all we've done is turn off the lights from showing them the way to the narrow path. Love is clear, remove clarity from speaking truth, and you have actually removed love for that person. Jesus is the way, the truth, and he's the life. Any philosophy or religion that rejects or redefines that receives the same condemnation as these cities mentioned here. So he talks about Chorazon and Bethsaida and actually mentions Capernaum as well. He ties in Sodom, Tyre, and um, Tyre and Sidon, which Tyre and Sidon were cities in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28, that were judged by God. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, sort of like your textbook example of cities that were judged uh, for rejecting God and choosing sin. So you see that in verse 13. And actually, verse 15, I mentioned the heartbreaking reality of Capernaum, which if you know about the life and ministry of Jesus, Capernaum was like the adopted home of Jesus. Jesus while he was on earth, uh, or at least it was like the HQ of his ministry. So it's sad, it's actually heartbreaking that despite being so close to Jesus, likely even more so than any other city in Israel, the comfort that Capernaum as a city had with Jesus bred complacency, and that complacency towards Jesus actually bred condemnation. Do not be deceived into thinking that loving people means compromising truth. And this goes back to the illustration, right? The wolves will come, but stay close to your good shepherd and you will not be devoured or deceived. Psalm 27 says that though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident, and sort of referencing back to verse 1, I will be confident in the Lord, the stronghold of my life. Now, that thought does actually lead us into this final point in the final section of uh, Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. And really, this last challenge that Jesus actually gives to his followers after they've come back. So this is at least two or three weeks later where these men have gone out. They've done the mission, the commission, all that good stuff. And they come back. And what do they say? Verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather... Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So the disciples all return, and essentially they just start telling stories about everything that had gone on. Now, this is, again, just to note, it's important to note here that Christ's response is not a, um, it's not a reprimand, okay? These guys aren't in trouble. Um, it's just, a, I say, a positive prod, but still a prod in the right direction. These men are celebrating God's work being done, and of course, they are excited about their getting to be a part of it. So I just say this, Jesus isn't saying, first, that they shouldn't be excited or grateful for what God has enabled them to do, to share, or even to experience. So he's not saying don't be grateful. This isn't a reprimand, but he's trying to take the situation and make sure that in their celebrating, their focus is in the right direction. 
So it's a reminder for them to make sure that their perspective on the harvest is actually centered on the God of the harvest, that it's centered on Christ, what he had done for them, and not what they had just done for him. So verse 18 and 19 when it talks about you know, Satan falling like lightning, um, this is not a reference to the fall of Satan, but rather it's actually, it's more encouraging than that. Uh, it's, it's a confirmation that Satan's power and work in this world are subject to God's harvest and God's sovereignty. So we look at the world and the evil, and yeah, Satan is out there, and he is, uh, we say, a powerful enemy to whatever extent, but recognizing there is comfort in realizing that God's harvest and God's sovereignty reign supreme over him. So as we walk in step with our good shepherd, the power of sin and Satan becomes irrelevant. The protection of God is over those who seek to be faithful to him. It's a similar reminder to that of Psalm 91, for instance, right? Those that dwell in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, that God is our refuge and fortress. He delivers us from the snare and the pestilence. So as God works in and through our lives to accomplish his will, to reach others with truth, we ought to never lose sight of who is really in charge. And again, who really should receive the glory and praise? God alone gives power to fruitfully engage in the harvest. God alone who gifts and enables his children to do works that please and honor him. God is the one that gives power to fight sin and temptation in our lives. It is he that always provides the way of escape so that we can bear the burdens of temptation. Now, these are all wonderful and powerful reminders. But again, what was the point of reminding them of like the true source of their gifts, their blessings, and even like their experiences? And this is where you get to verse 20, the last verse. He says, do not rejoice in, we'll say it, what you get to do or in the gifts that you are given, but rather rejoice. And he says that your names are written in heaven, that you're redeemed. Now, this is really cool because Kenny, obviously, being in First and Second Peter, what you, if you remember in these series, the both books or both letters start with this, like, this affirmation of assurance and security in Jesus Christ. So if you're going to move in the correct direction, where does it start? It starts with this security in Jesus Christ and your salvation. And again, Peter's not coming up with this because, again, you see this sort of principle reference here. Uh, not rejoicing in that, but finding that faithful service and productive service is actually found first and the assurance and our security of salvation because of God's redemptive work. Now, this principle of the names being written in heaven, uh, again, obviously it pops up a lot in Scripture. I do note that this is not just a reference to like a heavenly attendance sheet, you know, like the role that's called up yonder. It's not just a roll call and a list of roll call. Um, in this culture, when a child was born, their names were actually written in like a registry that identified them as citizens of that particular town or city. So that's, for instance, why like you have, you know, the Roman census around Jesus' birth, and they said, you need to go back to the cities of your birth. It was because these cities had registries that for, I mean, you know, you could say what you want about Rome, which there's a lot of things you could say, um, but they were very efficient, not always 
efficient morally, but they were efficient. You'll give them that, and that's about all you can give them. Uh, but they go to Israel and realize, you guys already have a system of registration. We're going to use it. Everybody go home. But why? Because the registry would have been there, and it would have been a lot quicker to kind of get through that. So just random connection. But again, it was the easiest, most efficient way to kind of get that census done in Israel. Now, this registry, to go back to it, was a means of keeping track of individuals, and there's really two sides to it. One, it basically was this connection of being able to receive perks that were involved with being a city of that particular town. So whether it was like an invitation to a special festival or something, I actually think a better illustration of this would be, uh, you know, Paul had, he had Roman citizenship, but it was citizenship connected to his birth in a Roman city. And one of the perks of that was if you were in Roman jail, you couldn't be tortured, which I feel like that's a, you know, if you're in prison, you can't be tortured. That's, I would call that a perk. Um, But you do see that right in like Philippi and even Jerusalem where he's like, oh, I didn't know you guys, I didn't know you guys tortured Roman citizens. And they're like, whoa, what? You know, but that, that, that's a perk. So the registry basically tied you to the perks of being a citizen of that city, but it was also a means of passing down an inheritance or a wealth if someone in like their lineage passed away. So they used the registry to go, okay, this is what's left. These are the people in that family. So they kind of get a chunk of whatever that was. Now, what's interesting was that it was actually possible for your name to be stricken from that actual registry. So if you committed a terrible crime or if you rejected that citizenship for like another citizenship, then they would erase your name. And it wasn't just like, oh, well, you're out. This was, it's almost like your birth certificate. Like if you're erased out of the city, it's like you were never born. So it was kind of a big deal to have your name erased, which again ties into the illustration where Jesus says, right, your names are written and it can't be blotted out. Uh, So again, tying into this principle of the assurance of salvation, removing, uh, well, getting into that idea, right? He confirms, and I think this is the point, right? He confirms their names are written. So there is an immediate security, assurance, and confidence in his redemptive work. Your names are written in heaven, which ties into the assurance and security of their souls for eternity, which again, certainly is a blessing (laughs) uh, for us, right? Um, But second, it involves all of the blessings that came with being a child of God and the fact that your name cannot be erased or blotted out, which is only true, to go back to the point, because Christ, God, has adopted us as children of faith through his redemptive work. Yes, we are heirs with Christ, and we share all the blessings that come with being citizens of heaven, but why? because of what Christ has done, what he has made available to us. So to kind of wrap it up, what's the point? This is not a call to not be grateful for getting to be a part of what God is doing, or even to not be grateful for whatever gifts, talents, or experiences that God has graciously given to us as his children. But rather, it is a reminder that nothing we do for God, nothing we do for God, outweighs what he has done for us. There is a danger in finding too much security or comfort 
and the things that we do for God and actually losing sight of what he has done for us. Too often we get caught up in building a spiritual resume, I call it, in order to convince ourselves that we are gifted, experienced, or qualified. We start building our feelings of satisfaction or even usefulness in what we do, the titles we hold, or the positions that we fill. Instead of finding soul satisfaction in God's redemptive work for us, finding peace and simply walking in step with our shepherd. Ministry is not about our gifts, our titles, or building a spiritual resume, to borrow that again, to show that we're qualified to serve or to help. Serving in and of itself shouldn't be what makes us feel useful, valuable, or even important. It shouldn't be about holding roles of responsibility so that others can see how gifted we are. Leave the title chasing and resume building behind you and instead seek to disappear into the background of God's work in the hearts of others. Stop chasing value based on service or titles and just chase after God's heart and love on the people in your home, life, and church. So I'm just going to flip this into questions. What makes you feel valuable? Is it a talent, a title, a position, or the fact that the God of the universe has intervened in your life to save you from sin and condemnation? Do you find solace in knowing without a doubt that your name is permanently written in heaven with the blood of Christ? Why in the world would you celebrate earthly actions over the eternal miracle of your soul's redemption? As Matthew Henry said, in the choice of rejoicing in what you can do or in what God has done, Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that God has redeemed your soul. I like this one. Rejoice in the greater miracle. We're going to go back to that key question we started with. When everything else is stripped away, is your relationship with Christ enough to keep you rejoicing, or do you always seem to need more? Are you content to just be close to your good shepherd and to faithfully walk in step with him wherever you are? Yes, be humbled by God's using you in his harvest. And yes, be grateful for what gifts and talents that he's given you and use them wisely and discerningly. But do not build your satisfaction or your rejoicing on your gifts, accomplishments, or even emotional experiences. Rejoice that God cares for you and that he protects his sheep as they face the world's ravenous wolves. Rejoice that he chooses us to be a part of his harvest. Rejoice in God's intervention to call you, to save you, and to make you through his work an eternal citizen of heaven, an heir with Christ, and a child of the King. In closing, uh, I actually just wanted to read one of my, this is one of my, uh, A.W. Tozer is an author that, a preacher that I enjoy. Um, Actually, fun fact, Peter's middle name is Aiden, and it's after Aiden Wilson, so uh, there you go. People know a little bit more about my five-year-old son. Uh, but his middle name is actually after A.W. Tozer. Um, it's a little bit long. It's not like, you know, so about 20 minutes. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little long. It's not that long. Um, but I actually think that the quote makes a really good way of explaining what does all of that and like how does it look like uh, in our hearts. And actually, I think this is a prayer that he prayed that somebody recorded. Um, but I'm just going to read this and then we'll close in prayer. So Tozer, he said, prayed this. Lord, be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasures shall seem dear unto me if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. 
I am determined that thou shalt be above all, though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Be thou exalted above my comforts. Though it mean the loss of bodily comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses, I shall keep my vow made this day before thee. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee, even if as a result I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. Rise, O Lord, into thy proper place of honor, above my ambitions, above my likes, my dislikes, above my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me sink that thou mayest rise above. Let's pray. Father, we come before you more than anything else, humbled by your sovereignty, Lord, humbled by your majesty, humbled by your love for sheep as helpless as us, Lord, that we had no hope, no help, no defense for the condemnation that was on us, Lord, the wrath that was to come. But to step back and recognize what you have done and how you have have called us, Lord, saved us, that our security rests not in anything that we can do, Lord, but to come before you broken and humbled, needing help, needing salvation. I just pray for those that haven't accepted you, whether kids, teens, adults, anyone, that you would work in their hearts, that you would help them to recognize the seriousness of rejecting Christ, to feel the eternal weight of that choice, but Lord, using it to draw them to you. Help us as your church to be a light in our community. Help us to speak the truth in love, but to never compromise either one. Help us to be built foundation, have a strong foundation built on your word, to not be shaken by the mocking of wolves, Lord, or the attacks that come. We are so grateful for who you are, Father, for what you've done. And just pray that you would humble us, never forgetting who you are and what you've done to save us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.